Our primary reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, and followed by verses 32 through 44. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on one another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is, a, is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The word of the Lord. When the most recent terrorist attacks by Hamas erupted and Israel began preparing its counterstrike, there was the usual combination of great grief at the bloodshed and anger about those leaders who were ordering the bloodshed. And however you view this new round of war between the militants and Israel, almost everyone can agree that this situation is beyond tragic, unless you're the type of Christian who thinks the end of the world is now imminent. And then you're kind of excited. And I know y'all hear me say this all the time, it is not productive to argue with strangers on the internet, but the other week a local attorney and South Carolina State House representative actually posted this when it appeared that militants had fired some rockets into Israel from neighboring Syria, he publicly posted, I truly believe that we are in the end times, my friends. We will see this prophecy fulfilled at any moment. Watch, pray, seek the Lord. And then he cited this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 17.1 about Syria. 
Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. Now, I don't know if this attorney just like Googled Bible verses with the word Damascus in it and then he like cut and pasted whatever came up. But the prophecy that this bro thought was a good idea to reference was actually fulfilled 2,500 years ago when Damascus fell to the Assyrian Empire. So no, we're not going to see this prophecy fulfilled at any moment. But not only did this elected official who is somehow allowed to make laws that govern our lives blatantly misuse the Bible, but he claimed that the end times are now upon us, that the return of Jesus is imminent. So needless to say that when I challenged him to give some sort of statute of limitations on when the destruction of Damascus would recur or the end of the world would start happening, and that afterwards he would publicly apologize for being so reckless in misleading people, well, he wasn't too happy. He told me that I needed to repent and get ready for Jesus. Of all the questions that we got in this Glad You Asked series this year, Questions about the connections between the geopolitical events in Israel, the book of Revelation, and the end of the world, these were the most asked questions. Now, chances are that even if you didn't go looking for it, you probably picked up something about the Christian view on the end of the world, which theologians call eschatology. You could have picked this up through some sermons, or maybe some slightly weird Christian friends maybe Christian media, or even Hollywood pop culture. When it comes to eschatology, there are some entertaining and occasionally hilarious things out there. And if you've absorbed anything about it, there are probably two consistent themes that run through it. The first is that what you've probably heard has come from the book of Revelation, This is important to note because how Christianity actually understands the end of the world and God's renewal of the world comes from multiple books of the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's the Hebrew scriptures, there's Isaiah, to some extent Daniel and Ezekiel. And in the New Testament, there are references to the return of Christ in seven other books. And Jesus himself makes references to a great approaching judgment that will occur after his resurrection and ascension back to the triune God. But for some reason, Revelation gets the most attention by both pop culture and religious wackadoodles. And this is because it is by far the most wild source material. If you have heard phrases like the tribulation or the mark of the beast or Armageddon or Antichrist or lake of fire, these all come from Revelation. I mean, seriously, if the author of Revelation, this Christian leader named John, was not inspired by the Holy Spirit, I mean, look at some of this stuff. He definitely ate some kind of mushrooms in a cave. Or maybe the Holy Spirit used the mushrooms. I don't know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. In fact, Revelation, y'all, was so wild that it almost didn't make the cut into the Bible. Even though it was written in the first century, it had to wait to the fourth century to be included as the last book of the Bible. Why? 
Well, because religious wackadoodles were already using it to predict the end of the world in the eastern half of the Mediterranean world. And the eastern theologians are like watching these weirdos and they're like, uh, yeah, no, let's not put this in the Bible. It's not going to end well. However, Revelation was much more popular among the theologians and the regular folks in the western half of the churches, and they wanted it in. They weren't having the same problem with all the crazies. And so in the 4th century, the eastern church leaders and the western church leaders made a compromise that they would allow Revelation into the Bible as the final book on the condition that it would only be used for prayer and worship, not doctrine and prophecy, a condition which everyone promptly ignored. Oops. So what does this mean? We'll start with this. If anyone's explanation for how the end of the world happens comes exclusively or almost exclusively from Revelation. They are already misusing the Bible. Now the second theme, if you've been exposed to the Christian view of the end of the world, is this. It sets all the prophecies of the Bible, the ones in Revelation, the ones by Jesus, even some of the ones in the Old Testament in the future. They say that nothing we read about this in the Bible has happened yet, but it will happen in the future, and it will all happen very quickly, usually in about the span of seven years. And there's actually a name for this. It's called the futurist interpretation. Now, if you listen carefully, someone's mind just cracked open this morning because until 10 seconds ago, they didn't know that there was a view of the end of the world called futurism. They were always told, they were just called, this is what the Bible says. But that's one of the common traits of the futurist interpretation, is that it presents itself as the only way to understand the prophecies of Revelation, Jesus, and elsewhere in Scripture. And so when you combine futurism with a fixation on the book of Revelation, you get what commonly passes for end times theology in most modern American churches. Our current futurist eschatology can best be characterized by the following three things. One, an unfounded level of generational self-importance. That is, somehow, even though people have been wrongly predicting the end of the world since the beginning of Christianity, for some reason, this is going to be the generation when Christ returns. Two, an obsession with identifying the signs of the times. In other words, you're always trying to read the tea leaves to figure out who the Antichrist is going to be and what the mark of the beast issued by the Antichrist is going to be. Is it going to be a barcode? Is it going to be cryptocurrency? Is it going to be your COVID booster with some nanobots put in it? I'm not kidding. And three, a fixation on Israel for the return of Christ if you've ever wondered why so many Christians seem to support the nation of Israel unquestioningly, it's because they believe that the events in Revelation require Israel to exist for the battles of Revelation to be fought in it. 
altogether. This means that every time there is a war that has to do with the state of Israel, a big chunk of American Christianity begins saying, the end is near. And it doesn't matter. That hasn't happened in the last dozen conflicts in Israel. This time, it's going to happen. And so you need to repent and get ready for Jesus. Now, if you think this sounds like a stressful way to live, it is. But I also think this provides psychological comfort as well. And so if you have a relative or a friend or a state house representative that believes this stuff, believing that Jesus is coming back in our generation can feel good too. Why? Because it serves as an intellectual shortcut for making sense of our confusing world. I don't have to think about the intractable complexity of the situation between Israel and Palestine because I can just believe that Israel is always good and whoever else that is, they're always bad. I don't have to be concerned about 100-year problems like climate change. If Jesus is coming back every day now, give me that gas-guzzling car. And I think maybe most common, I can comfort myself when I see all the scary changes happening in our culture, like drag queens and live-action Disney remakes and women wearing pants as signs that the world is just getting so bad that Jesus is going to have to come back and intervene now. But what if those reasons don't do it for you? Or what if the anxiety of trying to anticipate the end of the world just has gotten really exhausting? Or what if you don't think that people who believe this stuff should be making laws, much less determining U.S. foreign policy? Is there a way to understand revelation and Christian eschatology as faithful followers of Jesus that doesn't include the futurist interpretation? Well, in part, because revelation was not placed in the Bible until the fourth century, there's no official original Christian view that we can go to. Now, it definitely wasn't the futurist view. That didn't exist until the 1500s, and it didn't get popular until the 1800s, until the idea of the rapture was invented, yes, invented, in the 1800s. The early Christians, however, held a plurality of different views about the nature of Jesus' return and how to read Revelation. But this morning, I just want to offer you a blend of two biblical interpretations on Revelation that I think are the most helpful and are embraced by the most sound biblical scholars in the world. Perhaps most notably, everyone's favorite cardigan, vest-wearing grandpa, N.T. Wright. The first of which is called the preterist interpretation. Preterism says that when we read Revelation and Jesus' prophecies, most of what they're referring to is not a far distant future, but rather an imminent future that was fulfilled in the first century. Let's look at our primary reading this morning, Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention into its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, 
When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? In Matthew 24, the disciples asked two questions of Jesus. When will Jerusalem be destroyed? And when will Jesus return? Now, to be fair, Jesus' answer is complex, and it wasn't recorded consistently over the three Gospels. However, there does seem to be two separate explanations that Jesus gives. Most of the prophecies said by Jesus appear to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in 70 AD. Now, how can we tell? Well, because he has very specific details And the point that Jesus is making is to say, look, notice the signs. Do read the tea leaves so that you can escape the coming destruction. Not only that, but Jesus says multiple times that this is going to happen in the generation that he is speaking to. Look at what he says in verse 34. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So the preterist says that whenever we read these prophecies, we should understand that they have already been fulfilled. We don't need to be looking for another war in Israel. In fact, when you look at Revelation, you can see all the same patterns as well. The crazy imagery of Revelation, like the beast coming out of the sea, isn't a literal monster. It's not an ancient person getting a vision of World War III. The beast of the sea represents the Roman Empire. The falling of stars and celestial bodies in Revelation was classic Jewish figures of speech for an upcoming political upheaval. Scholars even now know today that that infamous code of 666 that's supposed to point to the Antichrist or Hillary Clinton, right? It was actually, some of you got that. This was actually a code for the Roman Emperor Nero or Domitian, who were both definitely anti-Christ. Jesus' prophecies as the good shepherd were primarily meant to be pastoral, be comforting. They were meant to protect and encourage his followers in Judea to tell them difficult times are ahead, but I will never leave you. The fall of God's temple won't be the end of God's work. You will overcome. John's prophecies are also primarily pastoral, to be comforting, They were meant to protect and encourage the followers of Jesus in a wider Roman Empire. To tell them difficult times are ahead, but God will never leave you. And to proclaim something even more unbelievable, something that would have been absurd to hear in the first century. That the seemingly invincible Roman Empire will fall. That Christ will overcome Caesar. This is how the first Christians would have read Revelation. And this is how we should read it today as well. However, there are some prophecies that don't get fulfilled in Revelation. The last four chapters take place after the fall of the Roman Empire. And near the end of Jesus' discourse in Matthew 24 are these more ambiguous, more cosmic prophecies 
And unlike the ones that Jesus talks about that he says the first century Christians should be on the lookout for, there's a big difference here. Jesus says, you won't have any idea these are about to happen. Let's look at verse 36. But on that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding in the handmill, and one will be taken, and the other left." So while it is clear that the prophecies of Revelation and of Jesus are mostly fulfilled either by the destruction of the temple or of the fall of the Roman Empire, neither can account for the visible second coming of Jesus that includes the resurrection of the dead and the visible reign of God on earth. These events are predicted not only in Revelation but also in the letters by the Apostle Paul. And so while I believe that preterism is a generally good explanation, it can only be a partial explanation. This is why most theologians identify themselves with something known as partial preterism. We still wait for the full and final coming of Christ, the Son of Man. And of this, no one knows the day or the hour. The second coming will happen, as Jesus says, on a day like this one. A day of beauty and a day of sadness. A day of justice and a day with oppression. A day with peace in some regions and a day with war in others. We don't know when. We can't know when. So we certainly should not be anxious about it. But this does not mean we get complacent. The response for rightly rejecting futurism isn't, okay, well, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, so I don't know and I don't care. If that was supposed to be our mentality, Jesus or John would have said, hey, this isn't going to happen for like 10,000 years, so just don't worry about it, okay? But what does Jesus say in verse 42? Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The ambiguity is supposed to make us aware. It's supposed to make us contemplative. About what, you might ask? Well, there's a second interpretation of Revelation that pairs really well with preterism, and that's called idealism. Idealism also rejects the claims of futurism, but says that Revelation is not only coded first century history. Rather, idealism says that the spiritually formative reason that Revelation is in the Bible is not just to challenge first century Christians to resist idolatry and violence and exploitation of the Roman Empire, but for every generation of Christians to resist idolatry, violence, and exploitation of any empire. The idealist interpretation pushes back on my tendency to complacency 
by calling every generation to decode its own culture. What is our mystery Babylon today? What are our modern antichrists? What is the modern beast of power that is devouring peoples? As followers of Jesus, we are meant to be aware of a bigger story around us and to contemplate how the story of Revelation plays out in every generation again and again, but that the end is always the same. God never abandons us, and in the end, God wins. And if God hasn't won yet, then it is not the end. And in case you're wondering what the end, the ultimate end looks like, it's pretty amazing. In fact, what I like so much about Revelation's ending is that it faithfully reiterates the one that the prophet Isaiah wrote 700 years before him. I'm going to read to you in closing Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. But I want you to look at the screen and compare it with Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Friends, hear this good news. If you want to know what the end of the world looks like, it's not World War III. It's this, just this. Heaven and earth blended together where the damage of sin is healed by a God who will no longer require faith to believe in because God will be present before your very eyes. Both testaments of scripture. This is the clearest and most consistent future that is foretold. This is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This is why we say every Sunday, Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we did get a few questions. Just a few. Yeah. Pastor live stream is going to be long tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. You tune in for like a half hour episode tomorrow. All right. What do we got? All right. Uh, so when Jesus comes again, how will he appear across the world at one time? Will he travel from place to place? Will we all burn and not be able to lay our eyes on him? It's a big, weird concept that's hard to understand and, yeah, causes confusion for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so when you read Revelation, it, it, it is this, this cosmic thing. We, I don't think we should try to speculate how exactly this is going to go down uh, and try to get our heads around particular imagery. I do want to gently kind of push back on that one maybe fear this person has like is this all going to burn and then like we're not going to see it what's really important within the orthodox historical christian theology around the return of christ is that god does not destroy the world god does not burn up the world god comes to renew it heal it and restore it and bring heaven to earth and so that it is God's will. That's why we say like God's will on earth as it is in heaven, right? Like that's, that is the, the, the future hope that we are proclaiming in the return of God. So don't be scared that like when God shows up, everything's going to catch fire. That's, it's going to be wild. It's going to be crazy. It's going to blow my mind. But it's gonna, it is going to be so beautiful and good that we will like praise God for it. It's much more comforting. Um, all right. So if the rapture was an invented concept, how should we interpret the part of Matthew uh, that talks about one person being taken and the other being left on earth. Yeah, so this is one of the favorite verses uh, for folks who like the rapture to go to because they're like, and then they, then they get teleported to heaven. Um, I, I think when Jesus is referring to this, he's referring to the, the, the suddenness of God's return. The whole, the whole passage, right, is this emphasis on like, look, you don't know what's going to happen. It's going to happen very suddenly. Don't try to read the tea leaves, right? It's, two people are going to be there and it's going to change. Um, I think this also fits into the Pauline theology where during the return of Christ, there will be some sort of like, almost like sorting of, of people. Um, so if you really love the rapture and you just can't let it go, then, then the rapture happens instantaneously with the return of Christ. So maybe that's where you, you can kind of settle on it. Uh, or if you're talking to someone who loves the rapture, you can be like, well, okay, maybe you can go there and it's just right when Jesus comes back. But the important thing to note, right, is the concept of the rapture did not exist in any denomination, in any Christian tradition, with any theologian until the 1800s. So I, I, even though we kind of like project that on with our pop culture, no Christian was thinking that. And so again, if you're having those combos with folks who believe the rapture, that's a, that, starting at the history point, um, that's, that's a good place to start having that conversation. All right, and the last one for today. Uh, couldn't John have just been using Isaiah as inspiration for what he was writing in Revelation? How do we know it's any more profound than that? Okay, so yes, I, I think John uh, had some... Uh, understanding of Jewish theology and Jewish scripture. And so he is, he, he's not like magically pulling from Isaiah, right? He's intentionally pulling from Isaiah. But what I think is so beautiful about this, y'all, is like when you read Isaiah, it's like God will do this. And then John is like, no, no, these things have happened. God really is with God's people. God really has healed all things. And he even, he even ramps it up. like, God, in case you're concerned, like, does this mean like no more tears? And he's like, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning. Like it is so beautiful and good. And I just love that the Holy Spirit inspired John to take that from Isaiah and, and, and to, to close with that. And it just gives me so much comfort. And again, when you think about how do we make healthy doctrine, we take the things that are consistent across scripture and so that ending for Revelation, just for me personally, is, is such a comfort and such a beautiful thing about its reliability and consistency. Awesome. All right. And there were a ton more questions coming in, um, some super long ones, some really fun ones. So uh, if you have any more throughout the day, if you have questions about the questions, keep sending those in and Colin will answer all of them on the live stream tomorrow. Or, or try to. We'll try to. Yeah. <laughs> all right, friends. With that, let us now stand and join our voices together as we prepare for communion and sing the something to us.